Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values and how we can build empathy and connection in a time of increasing polarization. Every episode, I talk to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform, and I try and give them space to reflect on their deepest values, what they think a good life is all about, and what they've learnt about navigating our deep differences. Guests come from all quadrants of the political compass. They hold a vast range of different metaphysical beliefs and work in all manner of different professions. The hope is that we can get to the person behind the two-dimensional public profile and in so doing, contribute in a very tiny way to a more humane and curious and open public conversation. In this episode, you will hear a conversation I had with two guests. Unusually, they are journalist Sean O'Hagan and musician Nick Cave. Sean is a music critic, a music journalist, and an author. And Nick Cave is a multi-award-winning musician who I think it's fair to say has achieved cult status. I know this because when I told several friends that I was interviewing him, they reacted as if they were in fact in a Nick Cave cult. Although, as you will hear, it sounds so much less disturbing than many cults do if it does in fact exist. Nick and Sean are also uh, two old friends, and it's the first time we've interviewed two friends. They've recently written a book together called Faith, Hope and Carnage. It's based on conversations they had over several years. actually grew out of an awareness of all the things they disagreed about um, and their desire to have a good faith conversation across their differences. So as well as being a fan generally, it just seemed too sacredy an opportunity to pass up. If you don't know the context, Nick's son Arthur died in a really terrible accident in 2016 when he was a teenager. And both the book and the conversation address these very tender themes of grief and loss. So I just wanted to raise that because if your heart isn't strong enough to be uh, thinking about bereavement today, then you might want to come back to this episode at a later date. There are some reflections from me at the end. I hugely enjoyed recording this and I very much hope you enjoy listening. Nick and Sean, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to kick off with a question that is the opposite of easing you in, which is asking about what you hold sacred. And that's deliberate. It's to try and accelerate through small talk, help us get into a different part of our heart, mind, soul, brain. Um, And I always find it really helpful to hear what is sacred to people as a way of moving away from the issues that we disagree on and the tribes that we ascribe to each other on and, frankly, the ways that we dehumanise each other to something a bit deeper and more tender. But it's actually really hard to get at, so please don't worry where where, um, your mind goes. And I'm actually going to start with you, Sean, uh, because I have a sense that you might have a slightly more complicated relationship with the word. You can even reject the premise of my question if you like, but it's deep principles, deep values, things on which you have tried to center your life. Okay. Talk about easing me in. Um, I don't actually have a problem with the word sacred. I just think it has at least two meanings. Mm-hmm. One is the to do with holiness and God, and the other one is the values that you hold. I suppose the values that I hold, to some degree, were rooted in 
my Catholic upbringing as a kid, so kindness, charity, all those things that you read in the Gospels. We were very much New Testament in the Catholic Church, and uh, it wasn't an Old Testament faith. And um, I think th those carried over later into my later years when I got a bit more radical, as Nick would put it. So old-fashioned, what you call old-school socialist values, which, which I think, you know, coalesce with a lot of Christian values. At the minute, I'm very interested in the idea of community. That's something I would like elevated a lot more, whether it's a Christian community or a community just, I think it's under siege, the idea of community. And I think that's something that's become quite sacred to me in the last 10 years or so of all this fraction, fractious division that we are seeing. Um, and then it's, it's further complicated because I'm, as Nick knows, I'm kind of weirdly drawn to the sacred, the, the, the sacred meaning God and holiness, even though I describe myself probably as an agnostic. I am, I find myself drawn to these sort of elevated ideas in, you know, in poetry and art in literature, in music. And I'm having to contend with that, having done this book and give it a bit more serious thought. Yeah. You know, and I'm drawn to the sort of private nature of, I guess, contemplation that shades into religious contemplation. I mean, in the book, I, I go into church and light a candle often. And while trying to undercut this, Nick pointed out that that was actually a very meaningful thing to do. Yeah. Otherwise, why would you do it in the first place? And I've been thinking about all those things, but I suppose if I have an engagement with the sacred, it's private and it's slightly sceptical, if I'm being honest. So there's so much I want to unpack there because the story that I was telling myself as I read the book was slightly different of a, of a Catholic childhood brought up during the Troubles, seeing the worst that religion can um, bring out in us. And there's certainly a sense of a dichotomy between you guys in the book when you're talking about God and religion and a sense of, now I think about it, maybe you didn't describe yourself as an atheist, but I have sort of assumed that you were an atheist and you certainly feel like you want to defend atheism about around some of the things that Nick is saying. Does that feel like there was a dynamic that was there at least when you started talking? Well, I want to defend rationality and reason, I guess, more than atheism. Atheism never really, it's a strange word, it's such a loaded word. It's almost as loaded as Christianity. And... Um, I'd, I mean, I, th I think that with the Catholic upbringing, particularly in such a heightened and riven place as Northern Ireland, it becomes very tricky. Mm. And when you get out from under that, which I did in my teenage years, I mean, you, you spend a lot of time reacting against it. And it, it, it's a long process before you realise that that's kind of pointless and that you have to move somewhere else and take the best of it mm. with you. Because it was, whatever else it is, it was incredibly character forming. Yeah. And um, but I do. It leaves me with a, a deep problem with organised religion because of the sectarian nature of the place where I was raised, yeah. and because you're also, to this day. I mean, when I go back home, I would be immediately classed as a Catholic again. Yeah. Just by name, where by I other live. people. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you, Nick. Have you seen a change in Sean? Have you seen something happening over these conversations? He said you were quite. You guys were quite argumentative in the early. Chats. We, we started um, the conversations after a, uh, uh, I guess it was like a, 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 
we were backstage at a, at, at a gig that I was performing at and we got talking about Israel, which I knew Sean um, had c- completely opposing views about, uh, mostly about the boycott. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I played Israel and, and Bobby Gillespie was there, who's also very um, anti-Israel. Well, well, no, it's, it's, it's more the other way with him. But um, I, th- I think it was an opportunity. I'd been under a lot of duress and had no one to talk to about it, essentially, because everyone writes letters into The Guardian and all this sort of stuff about it, but no one actually talks to you about these sorts of things. And Sean did. And it was, to me, even though it was an, um, three hours of us, like a pub brawl, we, it was exciting for me because it, I, I recognised something in Sean that was genuine and that he really genuinely wanted to put his point across and that it wasn't point st- scoring. And I found myself personally, I could hear myself become more shrill <laughs> and kind of, um, as I wrote in a red hand file this morning, I, I, I felt I had the kind of the, the wind in the sails of something I actually didn't know that much about. Right. And so there was something b- between that that really was interesting to me. And even though it was a fractious arg- argument, it was, in a sense, a good faith conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I kept ringing Sean back. You know, lockdown happened and I would ring him up again and we would argue about things. And to our horror, I think we r- realised that there was a whole raft of things that we didn't, we disagreed on. Um Politically, I guess, and but we also had common interests, which were music, and we loved loved the same bands and all of that sort of stuff. And eventually, I think the book um, became. Uh, we worked out a way to converse beyond our, on the other side of our disagreements, shall we say? So, um, so that we. We were able to um, challenge and let's let's say correct each other if we thought that needed to be done. But it was done in a in a genuinely curious, um, uh, genuinely curious way where we allowed each other. I think at least the privilege to be wrong, yeah. and that's something to be said in a conversation that we we, we simply don't get these days. So there was a sacred value not to push this too much, within conversation of that type. Mm. Um, but do, do you want me to answer your question? Yes, on, on, please. I mean, for me, uh, I think there's all sorts of places that you can find sacredness. Um, and it's often easier to find sacredness in the secular world, I would say, in the, than in the religious world. I think... I think um, I mean, recently I, I've been doing something that I've never done before, which is um, wild water swimming. Okay, so it's it's swimming in freezing cold water very, very early in the morning at six o'clock in the morning and wow. stuff, right? And th- there's, there is something about this uh, um, that feels very much to me, um, to my surprise, that feels sacred, that there is a sense of sacredness about this, the kind of um, of just being within nature. Uh, it's something that I've never really felt 
connected to nature in that way particularly, but this is something completely different. Um, there's also within music for me, there are there, which is also a secular activity, but in my opinion, a religious activity where the sacred can be found. Um, and, and I would also say that I, I personally find a, a sacredness within my marriage, um, within the institution of marriage, um, there is something there that I hold sacred. And these are all secular, or at least activities that can be experienced by anybody yeah. in, to some degree. But there's also um, stepping into a church for me, and that's also uh, obviously a sacred act. And I'm personally incre finding that increasingly um, beautiful, um, elevating, uh, inspiring, or all, all those things that I was so skeptical, I've spent a lifetime being skeptical about, have dropped away to some extent. And I really feel there is a place for me in the institution of religion. And that partly, I have to say, comes from having these conversations um, with you, because there were there was certain ideas that I had that died off th through through conversation. They just weren't as good as I thought they were. They weren't as strong as I thought they were. And other, um, other things that firmed up, you know, and one of those things that firmed up was, was the idea that actually I had always been living a religious life, um, even though I felt like I was a kind of a failure at it because I could never embrace it fully. But that position of, that position of doubt that is sort of adjacent to belief is a is a sacred position too, and so so uh, so I guess the question is what is sacred about these different sorts of things? And 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 for me, when I thought about it, it has something to do with awe and mystery and and beauty, and and that is to stand and awe. I guess is to stand in front of something. Uh, and to be uplifted, mm -hmm. and the self to be shrunk down, yeah. so that so there's this weird um, pull that happens to your very soul. I would say, um, and I just like to add on top of that, to me uh, is the precarious nature of what is sacred, and that worries me very much in all of these different areas that there is that that this sort of stridentness of the conversation is making all of these areas um i mean the 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 sort of precarious nature of nature itself um of of music that that is under attack by various forces um the the the, the idea of the family the idea of marriage um these institutions are also under attack um, and of course, religion is almost off the table. Thank you. Well, I have to say it is, and it's, it is very strongly the combination of Sean's amazingly tender and honest and curious questioning, and then your willingness to think out loud about these experiences that feels almost entirely devoid from the public perception of religion. As someone who became a Christian in my teens, I live in an intentional community now, a new monastic intentional community where we have rhythms of hospitality and prayer, a rule of life, a commitment to live outside of a kind of isolated 
nuclear family or single person unit. Um, and it to have something that feels truer to my lived experience of what this problematic word Christianity, <laughs> the treasure of it, is such a beautiful thing. But what what's interesting in the book is how... Well, for one thing, how the reviews have completely <laughs> not known what to do with that bit. Um, and how Sean, I think, saw the depth of the theme in your work and your music and your writing. But there's certainly, it feels like points in your in your conversation where Sean's going, well, I sort of knew you were, it came up a lot in your lyrics. I sort of knew you were going to church sometimes, but I didn't know. I was reading your 1998 um, Mark's Gospel introduction. So it's been sort of, visible in plain sight but it it seems like something changed well you're 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 very clear that something changed through bereavement through the loss of Arthur you just say a little bit about how you think about that now maybe a few years even after the book well it's 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 difficult because it it's um nothing happened immediately except the worst and so uh, so one of the things that in the book that happened with Sean was he he said you always tend to talk about grief or or indeed Arthur from the other side of of, of the abyss shall we say mm-hmm. um and and you you, you tend to put forward a, a a kind of message of hope and and grief being a and um, a potentially transcendent experience, these sorts of things, um, and that well, I found that quite shocking because and and uh, and true because I um, because it's difficult to actually say how bad it actually gets. It's difficult to say how bad it gets to watch. I'm sorry, I'm actually finding this. Um, it's difficult to say uh, how hard it gets to watch your wife, uh, for example. Um, so I, I'm, so when, I, when I talk about these matters, I'm more cautious about talking about them because I think they anger people too. Anger, anger, we were talking about this before, but they anger people fresh in their grief. How dare you speak about the transcendent nature of, of grief? It sounds, it sounds... Sounds like you're tidying indul- it up. In indulgence, or exactly. Um, so, so I'm I'm a little uh, re- resistant to. Well, I'm cautious to talk about it in that way. However, I believe that there is something that comes through um, the idea of grief as well. The, the alternative to the transcendent um, journey through death is is um, the other way, mm. which is to calcify around the absence of the person that you love. Uh, and this is a kind of hell. And it need, and that, that anger, that pure rage at the world is a kind of hell in itself too. And I think we, we have to uh, move uh, beyond that in some kind of way. So that's why I do talk about... Um, why I do talk about th- that my life is actually, uh, I say in the book, I think beautiful. My Susie's and my my life is beautiful and 
full of meaning, I think we talk about, and that there's a, there is a happiness to it and a joy to it, but it's, it's a different, it's different than anything that I've experienced before. It understands despair. And so it's, so it's a happiness that is, um, that, that, it, that it's a happiness that, that is defiant mm. in this, in the face of, uh, grief. And, and just don't mean to keep going on, but just, just to say that, that I think most happiness is like that. You know, there, there's a kind of, I think when you look underneath the hood, most happiness is hard earned, um, to, to arrive at, to, to arrive at a genuine, um, joyfulness towards the world. It's not, it doesn't come easy. There's something so, else. Sorry, should I don't no, mean to kind no, of... There's something else that you sort of leapt over there because there's a, there's a piece in the book that really took me aback where Nick talks about the actual raw state of grief mm. being so visceral and you know, well elevated in its own weird way that you that you become open to glimpses of the other, what I would call the other, you would call the divine or whatever, but you you do become in that state very sort of open to these, receiving these messages, which we talk about in the book, these, and this is something I'm very interested in, these glimmers and sort of whispers of something else that come at you. And I was just thinking when you were talking about finding the sacred, for me, the times that I felt close to the sacred in the divine way is, is always in certain places. It's not music or art, it's certain places that you go to when you're taken, by, you're taken sort of, back by you know there's places in in the west of Ireland for instance where you, where you can literally feel this energy coming off the land you know around sort of ancient sites and stuff when I went to Ethiopia and um, is it the Coptic church over there or, mm -hmm. they, um, I remember wandering into this ceremony it was um, I think it's called Mesco which is the it's the finding of the true cross it's, it's a feast day and there was like literally hundreds of people in this huge meadow all dressed up just moving sideways very slowly and, and singing and they do it for 36 hours mm. without sleep and it was just this overwhelming thing to I mean you couldn't not feel that you were in the presence of the sacred mm. in the literal in the literal or maybe not the literal sense in, in the holy sense of the word yeah and i think in, a, in some strange way that experience that experience of raw grief and dislocation things like that leave you open i mean i've seen it i saw it constantly in northern ireland during the Troubles, where people would talk about the most awful things and then say, but, and they would talk about some experience they'd had of the person still being around or, I mean, I, I mean obviously neuroscientists would say that's mm. the brain keeping you sane, but I think maybe not. I just wanted to bring that in. And also the question about, we, we're on downplaying the, the conversation that we had because the conversation shifted from the fractiousness very quickly. Mm. And there was one, I, and I remember it clearly, because it was a beautiful spring day, and I had gone down to Hastings, you were in, on your balcony, and you, you said that thing about doubt also being divine. And that really, I mean, that was the seed for the book, mm. that conversation. I, I, that played in my head for, I was thinking, God, this is really too good for us just to have between the two of us. Yeah, know? yeah, it feels like you're circling round. I tried to... I'm, my notes, I tried to kind of break out the themes, but I kept having to 
go like faith is related to art and art is related to grief and grief is related to art is related to the things that divide us it's this it is like a layering of a song and it's hard to know how much I am as someone who who is a Christian and is fairly comfortable even though the language all breaks down and becomes useful very very comfortable with the idea of God or the divine it feels like this almost like third party or third presence in the conversation that you're wanting to engage with in question and then slightly backing off from. And I, there's there's moments, Sean, where it feels like um, Nick's willingness to talk about himself more as a religious person, more kind of, it's, it feels like you're sort of longing and wanting to surrender completely and not quite sure how. And you're a friend who's almost like, careful, <laughs> careful. Yeah. What is it that you're worried about? Yes, be careful what Nick. you wish for. I think yes. I'm, I'm, well, the certitude that comes with certain faiths and certain, because um, I love the idea of surrender, by the way. Mm. I, and I think it's it's integral to to that journey that you would make, that, you know, love, devotion and surrender was not a, some record by some yeah. time. Yeah. But this, it's, it's the, idea, the idea of surrender, I think, is, is something that, I mean, from early on in my life, when, when I was dealing with being taught by the Christian brothers, you know, the catechism and all that, that was always there, that notion that if you, you've got to surrender, you've got to and accept. And that's the problematic aspect mm. as well. Even though I love it, it's the problem. And it's, 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 what the, bit you you, it's to? the bit where the rationality just gets pushed aside and you're, you make the step across into, and, I mean, but I, again, I, see, I love the grappling with that, you know, it's it's there in lots of things. It's there in in the four quartets by Elliot. So it's all that wrestling with, you know, I have to do this in order to get the full experience. Yeah. And um, but I was worried just because cause I think for a songwriter mm. or, or or an artist of any kind, doubt is very important in all things. Mm. Um, and certitude is probably yeah. Well, well, it's it's yeah, um, it's doubt or or. Or I, I would say doubt or not quite knowing is not just um, uh, it's not just something that I have in regard to religious things, but to the world in general. I would say it's a, it's actually a become more and more for me a, a kind of almost a political point of actually not really knowing. Oh, really? <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> well, it works. It works in that you remain curious about things, and you and you it, it, and that you you don't become uh, you, you become open to things, curious to things, and and you don't become dogmatic and strident about things. Which, as far as I can see, around these sorts of topics, we all become. Mm. And I I don't I don't feel I have at the end of the day, the authority to be that way. Um, and there's a there's an arrogance and a a kind of godlike notion around that that I find uncomfortable. And so there's something about um, the phrase epistemological humility is coming to mind. There you go. That's that's what I was gonna say. But even <laughs> sorry though, before you jumped in. Apologies. <laughs> even though you 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 express all this, I mean I sense that your faith is is Essentially private. Do you? Is it between you and God? 
Um, is it the private conversation or is it? I mean, I know you well, certainly it. have those conversations. Yeah. But I, I'm looking for some sort of structure. I'm looking for structure. When I talk to you and I, and I hear what you're talking about, it, uh, it's, it's a little bit the same thing. Sure. I would really like someone to sit down mm. and talk to me you know, about these sorts of matters um, in an open kind of way because mostly when I come uh, up against a Christian, not up against, I meet a yeah, Christian, yeah. it's a done deal. Mm-hmm. It's not something that they particularly, it's it's something they believe and that's, and, and why not? And, you know, and all the rest of it. But um, it's difficult to find people to talk to about these sorts of things. Uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, um, uh, the, the distance I need to travel isn't that far. Yeah. But uh, I still, I still, when I go to church, for example, which, which I have been going to more lately, I still walk in essentially as a sceptic. Mm. I just feel, and you talk about surrender. I understand the concept of surrender, but that's not, that, that's not something I feel you do and that's the end of the story. Mm. It's just something that you have to repeat constantly in, in, in almost every moment of the day on some level for some of us. For some of us. Um, but I, I, I do feel that, uh, I do feel that that skepticism, which I always took as a, um, virtue to some degree kind of gets in the way, can just kind of get in the way a little bit. And that I feel huge benefits, spiritual benefits, um, from, uh, just going to church and hearing what, they're saying and accepting it on on some level, and um, I just find it. I feel a genuine lifting mm. of the spirits. That wasn't always the case. Huh? I mean, you, you no, I used to I used to try and, and yeah. run out. You know, I, I just couldn't. I mean, there's so many things I couldn't. Back in the day, there were so many things I couldn't handle about church. The sermon used to drive me crazy because I had these ideas about what the scripture was and what it meant to me. And then uh, maybe I was just getting the wrong person up there, but the, the they would talk about this or, or in my arrogance, shall I, my youthful arrogance, let's say, I, I felt that they were diminishing or taking away some of the mystery of it and, mm-hmm. and all of that sort of stuff. So it, and, and then there was the kind of, um, turning to your neighbour and wishing them well—that that was really—I found that pretty yeah, difficult I found that too. Difficult. I found that you know, difficult. to turn to turn and look at someone in the eyes and 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 wish wish them well. It, you know, twenty years ago, that was that didn't come naturally to me. No, you know? no. Um, my relationship with the world world was—I mean, I did as a young person hold the world in some kind of contempt by, you know, as uh, as first principles, you know, didn't deserve anything else as mm. far as I, I saw the world when I was younger. But I would say when I was younger and and that's the way I saw the world, I was literally, um, as we've said, I was literally not an actual person. Mm. I was just a part of a person. And it took, I think, my son dying in particular um, for me to become a more fully formed person and be able to turn around and see the world as something other than um, 
to, to see the world as a, a beautiful thing. You have this line about, um, in fact, I'm going to do an awfully annoying thing. I'll try not to quote at you too much, but I just want to show you what I drew about the proximity of God and grief. Um, because I want to ask you a particular thing. This is what I drew. <laughs> to me, it feels that in that dark place, the idea of a God feels more present and maybe more essential. It actually feels like grief and God are somehow intertwined. And I wondered whether you were thinking about the cross at that point and the bizarre, kind of shocking, painful, beautiful idea of a bereavement within the Trinity and a God who's, you know, a father-son relationship sundered and the kind of tenderness and the presence and the suffering that is present in at least some, you know, Christians approach it differently and some of them tidy it up and make it victorious and triumphant, yeah. but... It doesn't feel like that to me. No. How much was the, that that particular part of the story relevant and helpful or not? I mean, I, th I think that's just in my bones, you know, and, and that that is something that I've always responded to uh, the Christian story. I mean, since I was very, very young, I, I, there was something about the Christ story that I, I responded to on a very... Um, elemental kind of way. Um, I, I also re respond to, and I, I hope I've got this right, but the, um, the you know, the, the night in the garden hmm. um, and the, the uh, withdr God's withdrawal hmm. from Christ at that point, at that, at that uh, I really responded to that too that there was someone that was crying out, uh, praying to a God that had... To, felt abandoned. Felt, felt abandoned and withdrawn. And that was unbelievably, has always been um, something that I've responded to very well. And, and right through the passion, mm -hmm. God's, abs God's absence is um, horrifying, you know. It's um, essentially a human drama, that part of the Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. And, and that, that really, I mean, even as even when I was quite young, I used to hear that and think, oh, poor Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why, why then? Yeah. And, and that, um, that is the condition of grief too. Mm. The... Um, feeling the forsaken. With, well, forsaken. forsaken and the withdrawal of all good from the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I respond to that aspect of the story very, very strongly. I am having an internal battle uh, because you used the word pray and I wanted to name the thing, which is every thoughtful, intelligent Christian I know is reading this book and astonished by it, which I'm sure your publishers will be thrilled to hear because really? it's a little untapped market. Yes. the so, so... If we can get that happening in America. Yeah. And I, there are, <laughs> I would not be at all surprised. There are... The two-dimensional portrayal of what faith looks like is so tiresome and humiliating for most people of faith. And this feels like something beautiful. Uh, I've never heard it put that way. That's... Okay. The, that, uh, I, I, I love that you said that because it's the thing that... 
that's this it's the thing that's so difficult for for um for anyone who is reaching towards something yeah um that it that it is, is so um diminished yeah um but but and every now and then you come across someone who speaks beautifully about these sorts of things and it's really um I don't know. I mean, uh, there's a there's a there's people that I listen to that I'm staggered by some of the things that they say, but it, it's a conversation I've really had to look for. It's mm. not. Uh, it, it's not. It's a weird fringe. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to ask both of you this question, which is why is it so hard? Why am I so astonished to to see tender, honest, beautiful? reflection on these deep metaphysical longings with with comfort with doubt but also a real straightforwardly uncynical yearning for the love of god and it is a question really about aesthetics because it and it's maybe the thing you said about certitude you know that emily dickson dickinson thing of like tell the whole truth but tell it slant that when we go straight on for things like goodness or love, or even the thing you said about that lyric, Peace Will Come, how that was an impossible lyric to write before. Yeah. You know, Marilyn Robertson does it, Flannery O'Connor does it, Graham Greene does it, Rowan Williams' poems do it, but the, it is incredibly rare to get art or just voices that seem to reflect the true complexity of the experience of faith and the religious experience, and everything gets flattened into kitsch, two-dimensional, Instagram cliché, simplicity of which that's not almost anyone's lived experience. Just as a kind of someone who thinks a lot about art and creativity, I'd love to hear what you both think about why is that hard and how do we fix it? I think, without being accusatory here, but I think Christians do a pretty good job of diminishing it as awful, well. Awful, awful, awful ability um, to communicate it. Yeah. And also the more extreme versions of yeah. charismatic Christianity. In America and elsewhere, and it has a you know it has a baggage for a lot of people, you know the Catholic Church, of course, and the roles in imperialism and all those things. I mean, organized religion has a part to play in all that. But I think I, I'm not sure you should concern yourself too much with that stuff. Really, it's kind of it almost seems to be a distraction. If you have a faith, you should make it sort of the best faith that you can, and not worry about all this other. Yeah. I mean, there are always going to be people who introduce it and just, you know, or go at it like like Dawkins and Co. They're just, they're just not having it, you know. Mm. But um, I, just, I, I just think we've, maybe we've culturally gone beyond that moment, I think, a bit. I think, I think COVID has a, had a huge resonance that I didn't, I wasn't aware, I wasn't aware of until we did those signings that, you know, A, that people had been so deeply affected and B, that there was a shift in the conversation. I mean, if, if you're standing in the middle of Waterstones in Manchester, Edinburgh, I've said this before, and there's 300 people and someone just starts telling Nick about, you know, I've just lost my mother and father and and the stillness falls and, you know, there's no, there's nobody going out getting a hurry up in the queue or anything. There was this incredibly respectful kind of thing going on and between you and your audience as well. So I think there's been a cultural shift, even though maybe the big lessons of COVID have not been learned and we ha we've gone back to normal pretty quickly. Mm. I think I think a lot of people haven't. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are seeking answers that 
or at least quasi-spiritual, even if they don't know it. They're seeking for some deeper meanings Yeah, yeah in, you in their lives. Put it so beautifully about so many of the Red Hand Files are people with a complete crisis in meaning and belonging, which I think has probably always been true. I have a lot of friends in midlife, mainly men actually, philosophers, academics, journalists, novelists, artists, who have been very, very sceptical and are suddenly like, very quietly kind of sidling up and going, can we, can we just have a little chat about Jesus? Because I'm suddenly finding it more interesting. But that, which maybe is just a life stage thing, combined with COVID and the climate crisis feeling of impending doom, means I think there is a like, oh, okay, just accumulating more stuff. One may not be possible, and two, I can see it doesn't make people happy. Yeah. Is it possible we've thrown this stuff out too early? Are you seeing that coming through in your audiences? Uh, I've always had... Uh a close relationship with the audiences. Or, or, I mean, not back to begin with. It was very adversarial. But it was, it was very, it was war. So it was war. But, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, something happened when my son died with my audience. You know, they, my audience rallied. You know, I, I, it's, it's difficult to even talk about this too. But um, it's, but they, they rallied, but it wasn't just that they, um, was sorry they had the same things happen to them. You know, that was the thing, you know. That, that, they were the momentary sparks that, that sort of, that, 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 I, that we started, it's Susie too, that we started to grab hold of because there were people saying, look, this is what happened to me. It's similar to what happened to you. Um, and this is what can happen. And, and people were both deep in their, grief and people had worked a way out of it but it was so um shocking to find myself a part of humanity hmm. you know that i was actually a person and that i was part of what presented itself as a great river of suffering coming from people but be- but beauty at the same time do you know yeah. what you mean and, and what i mean it's um it just had a, a profound impact on me. And, it, and, and I have to reiterate this, you know, that grief is not a theme in this book, but it is, it, it is the condition of one of the people within the book. That's why it just always circles back um, to loss and to grief. Everything is because... I feel an embodiment of that in some degree, and I think that we all are, mm. that we're just walking embodiments of our losses. And um, that was, you know, it's difficult to be contemptuous of the world when you, th- when you look at it in that way. I think the experience of loss is an interesting one because you say everyone, some people are, haven't. I mean, I feel that there's a sort of club that you enter um, when, when you lose someone very dear to you. And, it's, uh, and people will inevitably experience it at some point, but a lot of people haven't. And mm. it's a hard thing to talk about meaningful. It's like taking LSD, you know, you just bore the ass of everyone mm. <laughs> unless they've taken it and understand what you're banging on about. It's, it's kind of, you know, you enter that world, don't you, where you there is... I mean, I find, I mean, when, when I lost my younger brother, I remember being so envious of my mother, who had incredibly devotional faith. And it was just quite literal, you know. It was like, 
everything they said. That, that's the way it was. I, he, she, she had no doubt she was going to see him again in the next world. And it got her, I mean, she was like this sort of person that was just, I mean, she was grieving, but she had this thing that I didn't have. And I was just wandering around, banging into things, just like, how can this be happening? I mean, that was a pivotal moment for me that I, I saw what you talk about, the utility mm. of religion, the deep utility of religion. Because I am I find that term a bit tricky myself, mm. intellectually and philosophically, but it does... Well, so do I, if yeah. I use it. Yeah, you use it. And we, we might need to reframe that a bit. Well, I mean, I, I use it... Um, I don't feel that that I feel the weakest argument in that book is the utility of re religion, and that it's actually a lot more than that. Uh, I know, <laughs> but you know, I mean, the, the and maybe this is going off somewhere else. But one of the things I like about the book is that the the, the reticence around spiritual matters that it starts with, and the much more firmer feeling towards these things by the end. Mm through talking about things, through having somebody to talk to about these things. And like grief, I think spirituality and religion is another thing that, that we don't really have the space to talk about these things anymore. I mean, I've tried to kick off conversations at dinner tables about religion all the time, even just to see, <laughs> even just to see how badly it goes down. Yeah. You know, it's just like, please, you know. Don't even start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and gr grief is similar too for other reasons. Um, and I, I understand, I understand people's reticence around speaking about grief and listening and and talking to people about it because who wants to, mm. you know? And not just that, but we all have our own troubles, and if we have to see this person regularly and eventually you have to sort of retract to, to some degree and let them get on with things. Mm. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about the red hand files because the people that are writing in um, are writing in as if they haven't spoken about these matters for a long time. Yeah. Sorry, this is quite an emotional Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> we can all have a week. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, they haven't spoken about these things for a long time, even though these matters... You know, you know, my son died eight years ago or my father died, you know, when I was 12 or, or whatever. And, and you kind of think, all right, well, that's quite a lot of time. Mm. Let's move on. But you, it's the way that they're speaking about these things that they haven't had the opportunity to speak about these things for years. Yeah. And they want to. Mm. And it's incredibly moving that, um, you know, it's, and sometimes it's just one after another on the red hand files. It gets, um, and I try and write them so that, you know, they, they are speaking to more than one person, but yeah. it's, rel do. it's relentless and deeply moving. The bit in the book where you quote the letter from Tiffany and the poem that she sent in from her son, I had to... I had to take a break because I was just like, it's too yeah. raw. I had to take a break. Yeah, yeah. It. I'm trying to. I'm trying to form what is a very incoherent thought, but it is something about the way this is all related. That we spend so much in time in the world, 
very defended, right? Very guarded, presenting our best selves or just being practical, getting through what needs to happen in the day. And I'm very influenced by this philosopher, Jewish philosopher and theologian called Martin Buber, who talks about either moments where you you are a you, Sean, and I am a you, not an it. We are not making people objects in our world of convenience or just, you know, the stage setting of our life, but they are full people. And I kind of that's my obsession. How do we create a society where it's easier to have these moments of real human encounter? And I am absolutely fascinated by how the book models that, where you stayed in a conversation that got this uncomfortable and painful, and your friendship held, was a, your friendship was a strong enough container to hold it. But then the red hand files, which don't have that, are also somehow people are coming unguarded and undefended. And it does seem to relate to me something about God and religion and those deep things because of the fundamental loneliness, like the pain of being a person, the fundamental longing for there to, for the world to be better than it looks like it is and there to be more love and more justice than we can now see and more ability to connect with people. It seems like this like bundle of raw and vulnerable human longings at the heart of all of us related to art and grief and religion. And just how rare it is for us to be kind enough with each other to hold those things. What do you think are the conditions that made that possible for you two and perhaps in the Red Hand Files also? I don't think that what you're talking about is exclusively religious. I oh, have no, 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 or no. spiritual. I think, I, I, you I know, think I know, human. I know a lot of people who who are non-believers who lead what I would call, in inverted commas, a Christian life, yeah. or try and lead a good, examined life. And I think maybe that's what made the book work, because I, I would like to think of myself as one of those people. Yeah. But I don't think it's as determined by... I didn't mean to imply that, No actually. belief, as, as, for instance, Nick's way of living this. It's, but I think there was a mutual respect, despite the early differences, and there was a sense that we were both trying to work out something for ourselves. Yeah, that, that's something that struck me retrospectively, that we were both trying to work out positions for ourselves that were... Because, I mean, it, it was good timing. I mean, even 10 years ago, I would have went at you much harder and been that, been that fractious guy. But something softens as you get older, as you lose people. I just think life knocks the edges I, off I, you. I have to say, you're, I mean, you're... The way you talked to me changed as as oh, yeah. as it went. You I said mean, we, that, yeah. Yeah. you know, and and I'm sure I'm, I'm the same. You know, for hopefully. sure. Just the trust begins to settle in, and you can hear it. it. It's it's actually. I mean, this is a completely. Sorry, this is derailing what, the Go very beautiful it. thing you just said. But it's interesting to step back from a from a, 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 when someone becomes strident or all knowing shall we say, in a conversation. It's quite interesting. I noticed you started doing it once I started getting on, onto something, right? You just, you just step back and, and uh, retract, right? And <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, and not argue back. And it's actually fascinating to hear yourself suddenly where you're listening. You're just listening to yourself and, and you're not... Argue with yourself. You're, you're arguing and, and, and how often flimsy what you're talking about actually is. And it's a wonderful technique, which I've but then now you, learned but from then you. Would, <laughs> but then you would come back 
invariably the next day or, or the following week and go, hang, you know, that was just such a load of, can we start again? <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually well, change now. your, because we, I mean, we haven't talked about listening, which is a big part of all this. And I think that's really what's been sacrificed in all this social media fractiousness and stuff. There is no common ground for, you know, let, let someone have their say and then reply. And, and that was what, you know, that's what all the great ancient civilizations, rhetoric and all that was based on and Christian. All that stuff was, um, and I think people, what you were saying earlier on about, you know, people calcifying and people getting in touch with you that have not talked, it's the, it's the very reason they haven't moved on. It's because they haven't expressed yeah. or been allowed to express. Mm. Because that's how you make sense of it. Well, as much as you can. Yeah. So I think there was, but all these things, I mean, it's great that you're, and you're investing all this, stuff, but all these things really came out of, I mean, they weren't really thought through in advance. They come out of doing the book. I guess, you know, you've alluded to the wider context where it's really hard to listen across disagreement. There's fear that will be misunderstood, that will be mischaracterized as on the wrong team, on the wrong side, holding views that are problematic or annoying, um, that we do seem to be in an inf information environment which is making it harder and harder to, you know, you talked about listening as a form of prayer, that kind of, wonderful dream of thought about attention and the Simone Weil thing about listening as generosity, which I think is so evident, Sean, is what you're doing. You're listening so attentively to what Nick's saying, which means that you're just able to like dig out the treasure <laughs> underneath it. We all worry about this environment, right? Do you, what makes you hopeful about our divided times and what, what does help? Can I How give do that we a be go? better? I mean, per personally, I feel things are shifting in that, in that way. I mean, there are, the, 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 the idea that they are divided times is becoming a little bit, um, I don't know what the word is, not a cliche, but, it, but it's, it's too I, I, I think, I think ju just people are tiring of it. Yeah. Uh, and that, 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 the people who live in the middle and aren't really engaged or um, might be might watch what goes on on the the, the extremes but, but I don't know what you call those people in the middle but right. that are just that are, that are kind of flexible and pragmatic, pragmatic and try, trying to live their lives and um, I, I think they're standing up to some of this stuff, mm. personally. I've noticed it. I've just noticed people pe people just coming out and saying stuff now. And, yeah. and uh, it, doesn't it doesn't seem as, as dangerous. Mm. The times, that, that acute danger of opening, or of, well, that acute danger of, of holding an opinion, yeah. uh, I, I think is, is much less so than it was a year ago. That's only once. I mean, it's it's it seems to me even more dangerous and ominous in other ways. What's happening? I mean, the idea that Trump may come back, mm. or the the fact that he can't lose whatever happens. These things are quite, and that America seems poised on. I mean, America is a, is a macro example of there aren't conversations across the divide. That it is now so riven that the entire center has gone. You know? Yeah. I always think of that yes poem, you know, the center cannot hold. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's a recipe for disaster. It's it's. I think it's very, particularly. I mean, you're going to disgrace, particularly if you're on the left. I think. I mean, I, I just feel beleaguered. I, I think most of the progressive left do. 
And, you know, you can't have the conversations that you used to have. It's just become so toxic. Within, I hope it's passing. I hope you're right. Yeah. I find the Yates poem reassuring because it makes me think we've been here before. Yeah. But it might get worse before it gets better. Um, yeah, I think it probably depends which conversations you're listening into and actually what the Red Hand Files and the appetite for it has done has shown you how many people are done with a merciless approach to public life, right? Do want an injection of the ability to forgive and be forgiven. And that's kind of the last thing I wanted to draw out because it seems like such a central question for you. <laughs> kind of what do you, I just want to, I just want to get you to talk about forgiveness and I can't find a smart way to frame the question. Yeah, it's a difficult one to... I, I don't know how a smart way... I can't help you with that. Okay. <laughs> smart way just, of and forgiveness. Uh, well, a smart way of asking the question. Okay. Because it can make something that's fundamental. It's certainly fundamental in my life, uh, not sound twee. And, but, you know, I mean, it... it it occurred to me as we were making, writing the book or having the conversations that that was the primary impulse behind pretty much everything I do was a, an attempt to rec reconcile myself with the world and to ask forgiveness in some way, not just from those that have died, but in general um, to look for some way of making amends and redressing the balance um, and you do that um, not just on a personal level uh, by, by asking for that, but by putting something back into the world that redresses the balance of, to, to use a, another terrible word, your sins. Um, and I, I think that music for me is, is one of those ways. So I, I, I see, I get a lot of, Black on the red hand files for saying these sorts of things, but I do see music as essentially a, a, a good thing, and that to do it is putting good into the world. And from from uh, my point of view, it it is redressing the balance to some degree. Um, and the red and the red hand files and the the book too. It's um, it's uh, it's called living amends, I would say, um, and that's why I value music so much, and that's why it really frightens me to see music so casually discarded. Mm -hmm. That that someone has an opinion on something, let's get rid of the catalogue. Now that might seem a small thing, but to me, it's it's a massive problem. Um, in that that music is 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 the good in us. It's it's that journey away from our flawed selves, or it, it's the best we can do for some of us. And and we discard this stuff at our peril. Sean, I guess your Catholic childhood means forgiveness has some complexity to it. Where does how does that word and that concept land with you today? Um. <laughs> well, it was central, I suppose, to... And I like, uh, you know, I like, when Nick used the word absolution and, and living amends, it sort of 
fired me back there to, you know, the language of Catholicism. And it's something I liked. Yeah, that, fr- that freaked you right out. Yeah, but I liked <laughs> it. I liked the fact that you had that safe place in Catholicism, that you could be absolved, that you could go. Yeah. And it took you to do something active like confess your sins, even though people did it by rote most of the time, as far as I could see. Um, and I liked all that ritual. I mean, this is the weird thing I'm drawn between, because I like all those things while still not being totally a believer. I like all the sort of trappings, the ritual. I can see the importance of the ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see the importance of the community. Um, forgiveness to me seems something that's, I was going to say it's not very fashionable, but it's just not in the public debate at all, as far as I can see. It's disappeared off the... And when you see people, as you say, when they when they make mistakes, some of them more unforgivable than others, but even politicians who just get hounded out and they... I mean, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Tories, but even I had a moment of, of um, our last Prime Minister when she was leaving office thinking, my God, I'd give her a break here, you know, because it's... It, and I think that's a human instinct, mm. however much you disagree with people. And I, again, I'm not entirely sure that it's it's the you know the purely the terrain of of Christians or religious people. Yeah, I think it's elemental to all to all life that you that you have to do that. And if you, it's kind of like the grieving thing. If you don't do that, something calcifies. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but I also think that friendship itself is you know it tends to be a a good friendship tends to be a, a to on some level, to do with small forgivenesses. Small acts of, of, of kindness, of, yeah. Well, not just small acts, but of of having the capacity to um, be fluid enough within the relationship to to forgive each other yeah. about things or about what, whatever those things, small or big. Um, it's it's the it's the cement within a relationship, I think, or or a marriage, or. Um, you know, it's it's an important thing to do. I have to say, it's not just in the Catholic Church that the the concept of forgiveness is done by. This is it. it it's occurred, I you know a lot more about this. I than, might not. Than I do really, um, but it, and it's sort of uh, I'm starting to understand what the structure of of a a Christian service is and it, it it begins with repentance yeah. and and ends with a kind of absolution and maybe the you know and I mean I'm just I'm just talking I mean this is obvious to any Christian I guess but maybe the year is yeah echoes that too and um but I went to the commemoration of um all souls, mm-hmm. yeah. the service. The you, 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 when I said that, you're looking with such joy on your face. I just think it's one <laughs> it's of the. Like, yes. it's, it's also like a very Nick Cave moment in the Christian calendar. Well, uh, maybe, but but I didn't understand what it was mm. until I went, mm. and the uh, the gratitude I felt to be be. Uh, you know, I mean, essentially, for for who doesn't know what that is, it's essentially reading out the names of of the dead, yeah, or or, or the people that we want to remember, yeah. And this takes half an hour to get through a, a list of names, and the accumulative accumulative effect of that list of people is it, it's incredible because it just goes on and on and on, mm. but that. 
it, you know, it really struck me what it's all about, which is death and, and the proximity we are allowed to the idea of depth in that death in that service, mm. the safety you could feel, um, the collective nature of being with other people, the reading out of the names. Um, this was about death. And it was incredibly moving. I mean, I literally walked out. And, 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 and you begin by repenting your sins. The list is, is read and you leave and the music is beautiful and it, up, it lifts as you leave. And it's extraordinarily powerful um, and it makes you believe. You know, in the structure, it helps you believe. The structure of the Christian service in that respect helps you to believe. Um, I can't say that my scepticism doesn't come roaring back in the next day, let's say, but you are, you are swept away in the same way as standing in nature can be for some people who are literally um, feel a part of a much bigger thing. Uh, I don't know. I, I was incredibly moved and... Um, Moved by that service, but not just moved, um, changed by that service, I think. That was part of my life growing up, that service. You know, it was like something that came around. And, and as a kid, it was very... I remember going to it and ringing you up going, oh, my God, yeah, yeah. I've just been to church. <laughs> yeah, no, it was amazing. <laughs> and Sean's like, oh, really? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it brings it back. It's great. I could talk to you guys for the rest of the day, but I want to honour your time. We're so only getting going. Get myself We're together. just getting going. <laughs> well, maybe it can be the first of others, but uh, Sean O'Hagan and Nick Cave, I can't tell you how grateful I am for you speaking to me on The Sacred. Yeah, we, we, we really enjoy Thank that you. a lot. Thank you very much. Well, as you can imagine, that was a wonderful conversation to be part of. And Really a huge privilege. Regular listeners will already know how much I loved um, Nick and Sean's book and um, how unusual it felt to me to have a conversation of that depth and openness and vulnerability between two friends who are quite different recorded. Um, they really, It really struck me when they were talking about the kind of origin story of the book and Sean said, or maybe Nick said, I can't remember, that they were basically horrified to discover how much they disagreed on, that they'd been friends for a long time, but it was only when they took the lid off uh, some of the ways they were different that they saw um, the chasm between them. Uh, because I think we do tend to do that. We sort of scoot around areas of difference with the people that we love because they feel really scary and they feel like they might divide us. But actually what these two friends did is they lent into that disagreement and they kind of fought it out in some ways. Um, they treated each other with trust and respect even as at moments. And actually, I think a lot of the adversarial stuff probably happened before the book. So it's not as if it's a very spiky conversation all the way through. Um, but there is sort of mutual incomprehension at points. And that, I think, really helps legitimize and normalize that as part of a friendship and as part of a relationship that we can completely, completely fail 
to be able to understand each other and to still love each other and still be for each other and still um, seek each other's good. And it is sort of shockingly unusual <laughs> to see that modelled in public. It was so lovely seeing them kind of slightly interrupt each other or, um, you know, ex explain things to each other, despite the fact they, you know, they wrote this book together and then they've been doing a few other, although um, not that many kind of events and tours talking together. There's still sense of, um, it's very live. It's very real. It's not um, pat sound bites uh, for book promotion. I am, um, I really... I really could feel uh, Sean's fear about what creativity requires, that actually uncertainty and doubt are um, the grit in the oyster, maybe, or um, the grist to the mill of creativity. Um, but also Nick's sense that uh, maybe staying in that place forever isn't very comfortable. There's a there's a great line where Sean is basically saying, "Don't do it, Nick. Don't don't convert, because um, it will it will kill your creativity. It will kill your songwriting." And Nick says something like, and it's a paraphrase because I haven't got it in front of me. Um, Maybe creativity isn't everything, which I think is an enormous thing for a, a an artist of Nick's caliber to say. And actually, I don't. It's clear to me from listening to Ghostine and Seven Psalms and Carnage and the work that's coming out now um, that he, he probably doesn't need to worry about that. Um, but it is really interesting to me, this this sense that the a, a little bit of openness to complexity and mystery is, is vital for um, creativity and maybe just humility and being a bad, pleasant human um, to be around. Um, obviously a key, key theme is grief and, uh, the line that really has really stuck with me is about him feeling like he, there's something about becoming a full human person that happened when Nick lost his son and how it makes him more connected to the, to the rest of the world. And that in some ways grief has been a gift and taken him through to a sense of feeling more fully alive but that that's hard to talk about in public and it's hard to talk about with people who are currently grieving because it sounds like you're downplaying um, the darkness of their situation and you're trying to tidy it up and you're kind of unnecessary, uh, un, un, illegitimately maybe um, wanting them to find consolation uh, when they're in a place of desolation, essentially. And so that attentiveness um, really struck with me. And I kind of don't want to unpack much more because I, I think Nick and Sean's voices speak for themselves. But what's as I've, as I've listened back and as I've continued to talk and read it around this area, it really does feel more and more to me like what's happening in conversations like these. I had a not dissimilar one with Clover Stroud, um, who you'll hear elsewhere in this series, who's also writing, funnily enough, about very similar themes about grief and the possibility of God and creativity and what does it mean to live fully, I keep using this phrase because I'm writing about it at the moment, keep living in ways that, that feel fully alive. Um, but the, the people doing that are doing a form of ministry. The people who are modeling, speaking about that and normalizing that full spectrum of human experience um, 
in public are are doing a form of ministry. And I I sort of particularly want to give credit actually to Sean um, because his, the tendency, I think, when you have two people who write a book together or do any kind of project together and one's more famous than the other is everyone kind of focuses on the famous person. And Nick's been asked to do a lot of... Um, interviews himself and John's you know not not unfamous himself but um I think what what came clear to me in this conversation is how much um courage uh how much Sean's courage and, and Sean's questions have been vital for drawing out a lot of this stuff in Nick and how much he um how much work actually has gone in to bringing this beautiful thing into the public so I want to um uh, big up Sean O'Hagan, who was a joy to meet and um, and receive the the jewel, actually, that these two friends together have created um, in the world. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred with Sean O'Hagan and Nick Cave. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. If you are new to the podcast, please do, do go check out our previous episodes. And I would encourage you not just to pick someone that you know you already like. I mean, you can do that first, maybe. Ease yourself in. Uh, but part of the point is that we listen to voices that are not like us. We had a really funny thing on uh, our social media the other day when someone was saying that uh, the sacred makes them reluctantly quite like people thought that people who thought they wouldn't be able to bear. Um, and that is... Uh, is a very kind of everyday way of saying what we're trying to do. We're trying to carve open, hold open, pry open space for more empathy and understanding towards people who are different from us and might disagree with us on some very deep things. Uh, you can find us and me indeed on Twitter and Instagram. I really, really love hearing from you. So please do get in touch. And of course, it is hugely, hugely helpful when you share the podcast, we tweet about it, put it on Instagram, when you write reviews, when you leave us ratings. It's such a crowded podcast market now. We started in 2017. We weren't quite early adopters, but we were certainly pre this explosion. And now it's hard for people to know what to listen to or how to find things. So if you're willing to act as a little cheerleader for us, um, we would be so grateful our production team are daniel turner and lizzie harvey our music is by luke stanley with vocals by lizzie harvey and we are edited by drew hawley the sacred is a project of the think tank theos and you can check out all about theos's work at theosthinktank.co.uk